Episode 41 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with the lead academy SNC coach at Southampton, Sam Scott. Sam came on to talk about what he learned from um, being involved in teaching and how that carried over to coaching. Also, how they structure the multi-sport program at Southampton and his views on why Southampton Academy has been so successful in producing so many top players. So it was a great episode with Sam. It was good to follow up from the episode with David Johnson a couple of episodes ago. And um, I hope the combination of the two gives you loads of information on growth and mature, uh, maturation and how academy, some of the top academies in the country like Bournemouth and Southampton are working. Thank you to everyone for the, the feedback on the networking meeting. We've had some amazing messages um, giving feedback on how we can improve the meetings and also just people sending over messages of thanks on and for the evening it was great to have so many messages and to hear so many people benefited from coming to the meetings which is why we set them up in the first place so a big thank you for that we are in the process of confirming the next few we've got some really exciting venues um, hopefully confirmed in the next few weeks um, these meetings will take place before the end of the uh, before the end of the year and we'll get the details out to you as soon as we get them finalized and then we have also had a new iTunes review. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you. So this is from Magic Hands 28 Cool little name there. And it says, really recommend this podcast to any practitioner working or looking to work as support staff in football or any sporting environment. It really is an outstanding resource. The podcast is pitched at a great level, which, does, which doesn't require a PhD to understand. But if you have one, you'd still be taking away pages full of notes. And there's plenty more in that in that review as well. So I really appreciate you giving the review. He also mentions a few episodes with Grant Downey, Nick Grantham, Adam Kerr, um, and what he's taken from it. So that's amazing to hear. Please, if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes, leave us a review. Doesn't need to be as detailed as that one, but if you do have time to do that, that's amazing because it's really good to hear that people are taking things away from the podcast. Um, obviously, when we're recording them and putting them out, it feels like we're not talking to too many people, but we've had some amazing feedback and it's great to see um, people taking loads of information away and mentioning what they've taken from certain guests. So if you do have time, please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review and just mention some of the episodes that you've taken information from or who you've enjoyed um, listening to the most. And then if anyone has any recommendations for podcast guests as well, which we have had a few recently, reach out to us, send us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com and we'll reach out to wherever it is and we'll see if they're interested in coming on. It'd be great to hear who you want to hear on the podcast um, and then we can get some, some future guests together. Thank you again for listening. It was great speaking with Sam and I hope you enjoyed the episode with him. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today I am joined by Sam Scott. Sam is the lead academy SNC coach at Southampton. Sam, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you on, mate. So thanks for giving up your time. Um, and it's, uh, it'll be good to delve into everything that's going on down on the South Coast. Indeed, yep. So, kick us off, mate. Let's go into your background, your experience, where you've been, and um, take us up to your current role. Yep. 
So I started off at university, at Loughborough University, doing sports science with management degree. Um, so I spent three years there, obviously playing sport and so on and, uh, and doing a degree. And I was fortunate enough after that to go into an internship role straight to Southampton Football Club. So that was back in 2012 now. Um, from there, I then obviously worked as a intern at that point in time and was with the under nines to 16s working alongside um, some of the really great coaches and physios and, uh, and sports scientists to the point where I was fortunate enough within the first sort of six months of my role that there was a full-time job that had been opened up it was around the time where each p was um, starting to increase and there's more full-time roles that were were coming up in the in the industry and I went for it and fortunately enough I was um, successful which allowed me to then become a full-time member of staff at Southampton and uh, back in 2012 2013 times you obviously spanned across quite a lot of roles and with that I actually did some of the teaching for Southampton Football Club so I actually taught uh, BTEC level three for our scholars as well as working with the under nine sixteens and Looking back on it now, it was quite a lot of work, but what that did manage to get me to do is to work alongside that and do a PGC as well at the University of Portsmouth. So I was fortunate enough to um, be able to spend two years doing the PGC as well as working alongside. And that allowed me to spend my time to build up um, my position at Southampton to the point where I then became lead academy SNC coach of the under nines to 16s, which is the role that I am now in at this moment in time. So I am a one-man club at this uh, at this moment in time. Obviously, with multiple challenges that have come through the seven years, and it's in my eighth season now, um, and still developing from there. Awesome. So you're saying about previously teaching and that being part of your role, Sam. What do you think that's taught you as a coach? What carries over from the, I suppose, the classroom? Oh, yeah, loads. I, I was so fortunate that I stepped into a role that allowed me to do that um, in terms of session objectives and aims to being really clear along there, the preparation um, for each session that you need to be able to do in terms of like, teaching is essential. So you have it pretty much in your head perfect how that session is going to go also the creativity that's needed in teaching especially in an academy where the boys are so focused on football when it comes to teaching it's almost like they don't want to be working as hard in that situation they just want to be out on the football field which everyone understands but it's trying to create more engaging environments for them to be able to learn as well um, and that increased my creativity in terms of trying to get them to learn <clears throat> the, the areas that I needed them to, to do in the BTEC. Um, alongside that, a lot of teaching is around like reflection, evaluation, and then trying to change the ways you're working with those players and diversification. So working with individuals in the classroom who might be behind compared to some of them in front and so on. So having that individual nature comes massively through teaching. And that's definitely gave me a massive foundation to to progress into the into the coaching role that I am in at this moment in time. And for you, how did you find it? How, how did the players react? So did they react different to you out on the pitch as they did in the classroom? Or was it did it work positively that they saw you as a coach that was leading on these um, educational sessions? Or 
how did it work? How, what was the relationship like with the players? I actually think it was positive, yeah. I thought it was really positive. Um, it's almost like you just transfer into the classroom because the parts I was teaching within the BTEC were sports science related and it's a sports science BTEC and it was more about strength and conditioning that I was teaching about. So it was so easy to transfer what we do with them on a day-to-day life or day-to-day sessions into the classroom to try and give them that like crossover, that transfer. So they engage quick with it. And then the nature of being a coach as well, I spend quite a lot of time not just in the classroom. I used to then take them out and do other things around the campus to um, to support their learning as well. So in that way, I think that it was a um, <clears throat> an innovative way of getting the players engaged with an education. But unfortunately, over time, my role just got bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of working within the academy coaching where I then had to drop the teaching aspect of it to then focus on the rest of the academy in terms of like managerial role and uh, working with the players as well. Yeah, we talk a lot of the podcasts about what coaches can do like away from the pitch to learn and, and improve their practice. And I think that that's one that we've probably not spoke about enough is, is the teaching side of things and getting away from football and trying to teach other things. I think it's really interesting, isn't it, to um, look at it from that perspective? Definitely, yeah. So we, in terms of Southampton, mate, like the amount of players that have come out of the academy, um, we're talking a top class, world class players that have come through the academy at Southampton. So why is that? Why has it been so successful? What do you see down there as being some of the key traits and key reasons for these players coming through? Um, so I'd say, obviously, being a one club man, I haven't got any perception of like how other clubs work so in terms of just Southampton in general I say that the care for the players going through the the system as such through the age groups is like amazing I'm always so amazed by uh, the amount of attention that coaches not just coaches people within the operations office people all over in different departments are focused on these players to to improve them um <clears throat> without the amount of time that people will invest in into them um is is great and that will obviously allow them to develop in in a further way um i suppose with that the players know that the coaches and everyone else wants them to develop as well and i think that gets them a real good buzz and motivation to keep on succeeding um but especially since i've been here which is the last seven years i feel like the integration of all departments together like working together is extremely good um and that's not just coaches into sports science and so on. That's everyone together working with operations, coaches, physios, sports scientists, analysis, like all work together to try and get the best integrated program for, for the players. But a good example of that is how we have um, all of our coaching team, plus also physios and so on in an audit meeting to understand players uh, performances at the moment where their individual programs need to go and so on and everyone has their their input and then it's actioned pretty clearly by our um, academy management team to to push players in the right direction in terms of their individual program and so on and everyone buys into it and everyone really tries to push that that way um <clears throat> i think also i think we're very fortunate to have a, a set of individuals play, players and also mainly coaches that are really inquisitive so new things come about um, and new creative 
sessions or techniques or whatever come in, then it's always one to try and they evaluate it and then reevaluate and try again. So there's, um, there's definitely that kind of not afraid to go outside the comfort zone, but making sure that we're reevaluating re it, understand whether it's right for the players and then coming back into, um, to something that's, that's hopefully perfect for them to develop on. And I think I suppose the, the last bit is just that I feel like the, well, I see that the standards are extremely high and the boys know that the standards are, are meant to be high. That's not just on the pitch, that's off the pitch as well. Like we have our 10 academy commandments, which are classed as like almost set things that the boys know that they should be abiding by off the pitch as well as on the pitch and all the staff integrate um, well to keep those standards as high as possible. I think they're all things that help progress those players through the academy system. So you obviously don't have to name them, but in terms of off the pitch, is that just around behaviours and and the way they act or what you're looking at with that? Yeah, definitely. So 100% behaviours. I know that Southampton speak about uh, fine young gentlemen off the pitch and that's something that is definitely pushed towards staff that um, this is what we expect. Uh, so whether they're in the classroom like they were with me um, a few years ago and so on, that they behave exactly the same with those members of staff as they may do with the coach that they know they need to impress or so on. So um, just those standards in terms of behaviour and the culture and stuff are, are, are high, as high as possible to, to get them as far as possible. When you talk about the integration rate of all the departments, that's that's an interesting point because that's what Callum Walsh spoke about up at um, Huddersfield as well. Uh, yep. People are sort of on the same page and they're able to sort of question each other but in a good way where everyone's going to move forward and they're all, all fighting the same battles. But what are some of the reasons you think that, that obviously you mentioned about the, the audit, everyone being in the, the audit and giving their opinions, but what are some other reasons you think that is so well integrated um i think it comes from the way that other departments are perceived or shown by um the like, academy management uh, team and so on in terms of like they're a massive valued part of the club and by putting that value onto the other departments it allows our already like highly skilled coaches to really trust us and know that they um they can trust us and i i know for a fact even without that sort of high value put on it from the academy management team that the coaches that we have uh would always integrate with us asking the questions uh always having meetings regarding individual players and how we and how we progress them um and it's not necessarily a you do your job and I'll do my job and then hopefully we'll we'll meet in the middle. There's always a, how can we work together to solve this problem? And that's just come about from the coaches and hopefully respecting that we have, as sports science, um, a good enough knowledge base uh, to help them and give them more information. That's through like the CPD that we've done. Like we've got, we've got a great coach development team here who work with our coaches in terms of like CPD and so on and and they always allow all the other departments to integrate within that in terms of giving CPD to the coaches and I think when the coaches know that there's information that they like to get more from us about when you open up those knowledge sort of pathways then they start to be more inquisitive and ask you for more information that's where the integration then comes from. I think it's really important, isn't it, to have that integrated team, and and it seems like it's when when teams have or clubs have not had that, 
it seems like it'll be a really tough battle for you to for everyone to try and get their point across. Definitely, yeah, I, I definitely. It's so it's it's needed massively that the coach opens up the discussion pathways. So, as as a coach that or the coaches that I've worked with, that if they wouldn't open up the discussion pathways to you, it's very hard to get your point across because it ends up being an argument. But like, I need to tell you this, and then they might. Um, push back on it whereas if they open up the discussion lines in terms of um, what do you think and so on uh, then it's so much easier to be able to work in as a team because um, that then allows you to to give your point of view in a very what you'd feel as a safe environment and then you can have that even if it's an uncomfortable debate that's going to occur from it you can still have that with knowing that they've opened up the discussions um, and I think that's really important and something that our coaches do brilliantly and I think that that'll obviously come from the top, won't it? Like with the academy manager and the people that are in charge, that has to come from them. Otherwise, that culture and that way of being able to question each other, I don't think that will carry through the club or the academy if that if that wasn't their beliefs. Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yes. So, well, on to um, growth and maturation. So, you guys obviously. I've had a, a successful time of getting players right the way through through the academy into first team. Um, I'm not sure on the exact numbers of how many guys you, you've had through, but that I know just from thinking a few off the top of my head, there's been a fair few players that have come through the academy. Yep. So growth and maturation must be a big thing, and obviously in your role. How do you guys go about it? What sort of things are you measuring um, to keep players on the pitch and, and progressing? Yeah, uh, so I listen to... David Johnson's podcast uh, from last week, I think it was. And pretty much the things that he outlined on there are, are aspects that we take um, take from it as well. He, he did really, really well in terms of explaining the sort of overview of growth and maturity. So we use the commiseration method as well. We also then do growth rates. Um, at the moment, we're doing it every two weeks, but that's because we have a PhD student who's doing uh, some research on that. But Normally, in general, before that, we'd have done it between six to 12 weeks um, previously to understand their growth rates. Um, and then from there, we use the maturity or the potential for the data height and assess all of the players in terms of who's the most mature and who's the least mature. And then we try to give more reports and information back to the coaches as much as possible around those areas. Um, we've done things like biobanding before, which uh, I think we had the first tournament was here in 2014, I think or so. Um, and that's something that we still uh, believe in and we do, but we just don't do it as regularly anymore. And just to add on from what David spoke about last time, it's it's more around um, biobanding allows us you to have that maturity level almost leveled between the the players and also the opposition and we've gone down the route of more of an individualized approach for the players so if they are uh, early mature in their squad what other factors are going on with them to whether they need to move up or whether they need to move down we like to spend a little bit longer with those players even moving up or moving down over a longer period of time. And the reason behind that is just to create a more stable environment for them. If you start 
we feel in our situation that if you start moving players just on these one weeks and off on other weeks and so on, that it can become a little bit more of just a, I'm moving into that environment and then I'm moving back. I'm not really sure what's going on. Whereas if we can fix the environment for around about six to eight weeks, if we feel like it's the right thing, then we're able to reevaluate it just a little more clearly. And then from there, we can understand what the next protocol is. And we've got to remember that even when they're under 13s, 14s, there's still a long period of time in their academy life they're going to be here. So that six weeks to try and evaluate it is going to be a, um, a small window of their whole academy life. Um, <clears throat> same with players that will be playing in the younger age group. Uh, we do exactly the same. We give them a, a longer period of time and reevaluate it from there. Um, and we tend to find that can have real huge um, huge benefits. But obviously it has its, um, its tough periods as well in terms of trying to get buy-in from the boys and um, making sure that their age group coach that works with them is always like still talking to them helping them watching their clips and so on so that they know that they're still integrated with their age group but they know that this is just a part of their development pathway that we believe is going to be good for them yeah um, i think this i think it's a quite sorry mate. i think it's a question i asked um uh david is how the the players react sort of re- react to those decisions so if they are being moved from age group to age group how how do you find they react or is it just the case of really establishing that um, that relationship with them so you're able to fully give them the reasons behind it not just saying that you move up or you're moving down I think having the first of all having the evidence of like the camera storage method which is like a number that comes out is actually really important because it's then black and white in front of them that this is where in terms of your physical development at this moment in time we think you should be because of because of this and then to add then the context around it will then help us in terms of it's really important i don't think we're ever going to get to a stage where especially players playing the younger age group i don't think we're going to get to a stage where players are just completely happy with it i think that they will accept it and they will do it because they know it's for the best for them but at these kind of age groups like 13s 14s 15s peer recognition is huge so you're moving them from their peer group into a a different peer group it it becomes a pressure situation for them especially with peer recognition needed to be like the number one thing in their life if they go into the younger age group and don't perform like they should do as an older age player then that can create even more psychological stress in them this is where we try and use our um, psychology department as much as possible to uh, help support those moves and that's what those decisions and by doing that and giving their individual programs to be a bit more about working with psychology and so on then hopefully we put a bit more scaffolding around the players to support them um to progress in that environment that we've put them in yeah awesome um so David spoke as well about the the load management and especially like peak high velocity and how they were sort of amending the program or, or looking to amend the program when players are reaching that that level. What what are you guys? How do you guys go about that? Uh, I suppose we so from under thirteens and under fourteens, we would just use RPEs for every session um, and do a session RPE. We then use GPS for 15s and 16s and then use RP as well and so on throughout the academy. Um, we 
like I said, our PhD student is now doing growth rates every two weeks, which we're extremely fortunate to have that information coming in. I mean, if if we were just a full-time member of staff trying to get growth um, information every two weeks, you'd pre- pretty much be a full-time job in itself. So we're very fortunate to have um, that. And then she will then work with that information to to try and understand um, peaks and troughs within their growth. I think that's really important. As long as we understand that the information we're getting is valid, which we're looking into at this moment in time, then you can start to understand like growth that happens. At, well, we believe that growth happens at quick spikes and then drops again and quick spikes and drops again, but that can be even within like a three or four week period. So with that, if we measure every 12 weeks, we might be missing a, a first three weeks of that 12 weeks where they've had the big spike and then the next uh, nine weeks they've had no growth at all, but we're still associating that whole 12 weeks as having a growth spurt. So we're trying to look into that and understand how that affects performance. And then from that, if we can understand growth peaks that are happening, then we can start to have a closer eye or look closely at these players. Um, we're extremely fortunate to have members of staff that work with our agents from 13s upwards. So we have one member of staff under 13s, one member of staff 14s, one member of staff 15s, and then the same for 16s, which obviously then helps with management of players because we fully expect those members of staff to know the growth rates and so on, like the back of their hand, knowing what their training load was previously, so then can have a, a greater eye on these players. I think... To have a blanket rule of as soon as they're going through growth, we need to take them out of training or reduce the volume probably isn't the way that we'd want to go. And that's just because there's been many cases in the past where players have had peak high velocities or really big growth spurts and they've managed to deal with training. So if we can allow them to still deal with training, then we're doing them a better service because they're getting more contact time on the pitch and they're um, they're integrating more with their, their peers. So that's the way we try and do it with constant communication with the coaches and with the players to try and understand uh, is there any secondary factors that we need to be aware of to then change their programme. We've... Um, We've worked a lot with or looked into using grass a lot more because normally in academies, especially with us in previous years, we've used 3G um, quite a lot. And then this year with some of the growth age groups, we've tried to then integrate them into grass uh, a lot more through working with the ground staff. And, so on. and that's, I think, worked very well. Uh, I would have no evidence to suggest that, that that's correct in terms of research. But uh, just anecdotally, I'd say that it has worked um, and that's something that we're trying to progress with and, and continue with. Um, so then if we do find secondary factors in terms of growth, uh, like they're starting to get hip pain, slight knee pain and so on, that's when we'll work closely with the physio and the coach in terms of affecting their program. Again, if the physio is clearer as it is just these overuse and uh, start of an overuse injury and so on, then we'll try and still keep them on the pitch but maintain them by reducing volume increasing coordinational uh, training and also like more more gym work and so on um and then hopefully that keeps a very like integrated model going through so it's not just a you're out rest for two weeks and then go back in because um we feel like we can still maintain them in the the big parts of the training sessions in the weeks um to the best of our ability because of the amount of staff that we have in terms of eyes on. 
which um, I feel has worked extremely well in the last couple of years. Yeah, awesome. So with the load management as well, Sam, are you taking into consideration like the stuff they're doing away from the club as well? So I don't know what the, the obviously the younger players are like with, with school and the things that they do with school or if you guys do um, any sort of multi-sport, like are you, are you monitoring that as well to see what the load's like from that? Uh, no, we, we wouldn't. Um, we didn't want to say anything outside of the football club mainly because it's so hard the amount of players that we have to be able to, to integrate that within in terms of a, um, a structured process with that we would tend to ask for our newsletter and so on to be able to pass on information to us uh, around what they've done previously but again because of our staff to, as in S&C coach staff to player ratio um, it means that we're able to have more discussions with players around PE schedules other sports they do and so on and, and just get a general um, theme around that for the players and then being able to integrate that with the coach in terms of changing up programs and so on dependent on on their outside um, outside activity and then when it comes inside activity in terms of other than just training, we'd have multi-sport, which we tend to do pretty much all the way through to 16s, but maybe just at a varied amount, like with our under nines through to under 12s, pretty much all of our contact with those boys will be multi-sport based and then integrating certain fundamental movements into that. And then as you go through the age groups, there'll still be a large amount of multi-sport that's integrated um, but then it might move into more um, strength development work and so on as well. Uh, we tend to like to work on our movements within training, trying to integrate that within multi-sport activity as well because we really believe in the, the transfer that you get, not just from uh, the footwork and agility that you're doing, but also different perceptual transfers that are occurring from different sports like handball um, or your movement transfer you might get from tennis as, as such in terms of your footwork and so on. So if we can create different, again, more innovative games, which then can integrate in with other sports, then we almost can get better agility games which integrate other skills other athletic movement skills that they wouldn't necessarily get from football awesome that sounds that sounds tough and it's a I think it's an approach a lot of clubs are taking now isn't it but it's just interesting to hear how the multi-sport programs actually structured and and what ages are doing what sports and the reasons for doing different sports I think that's that's really interesting definitely yeah and um, we we try and um, we work to a model in terms of having different transfers. So we have five different transfers that we look to develop from multi-sport. And then we have 10 fundamental movement skills, um, which then link in. It has a good then periodization through the year that we can then try and affect those fundamental movement skills 
uh, in a different sport whilst also focusing on what kind of transfer that is. So for example, it's like a perceptual transfer that we spoke about just then um, and how there's tactical awarenesses and being able to perceive um, other people like a handball, which is similar to football. Um, but then you might mould that in with more of a fundamental movement like uh, balancing and falling. And then can you can you mould a session that will have those two things within it, within that handball session as such? And then so through through those different transfers and movement skills, it actually creates quite a nice um, periodised plan throughout the year and allows you to then attempt different sports, but also have a purpose for attempting those different sports rather than just sort of going off the cuff with this sport might be nice to do. Um, so that I feel like that works definitely within the younger age groups. And as we go through, it becomes a little bit less structured, but we still use that same structure to, to work with those players in terms of more multi-sport activity. Um, yeah. Yeah, that sounds tough. And it's, it's interesting to hear that, that you, you're picking, you're sort of matching the sport to what you're trying to achieve. And I suppose you can even go into more detail in terms of manipulating the game for, what you want as well, like putting extra rules into a handball game. There's, there's things like that you could do, isn't there, to get even more physical qualities out of the session? Exactly. exactly. So a good example is that balancing the ball. And if you're playing handball or netball, whether it's just simply like catching on a certain leg or having to play the whole game on that certain leg or doing different drills beforehand, which you're going to be incorporating that handball um, game. But, working on that balance theme is really important. Um, and then it doesn't just become a, this is just handball like this. Let's just play a fun game of handball it actually has some purpose to it, which I think is really important. And how much detail did you go into with the, with the kids on that, Sam? Is it just a case of you setting the, the rules and you're giving them sort of challenges to try and achieve or are you, are you telling them why? I think, it's important for them to be framed at the start of what we're trying to work on. I don't think the transfers are necessarily important. So we're doing this because a simple one would be, it's fine. would be fine to say we're doing this because it's really, um, it's really good transfer to football in terms of being able to understand where these players are moving and so on. So it engages the boys a little more into the, the, um, the process and engages them into the sport that you're doing. But then also, we would talk in brief around what fundamental movement skill we're trying to work on here because by doing that, we we believe that the kids almost know more than us in terms of how to set up that session. So if we can use those kids to change their session during it in terms of, right, if we're working on balance, let's say, how can we change this to um, make it even harder? And then it would be amazing how many times the boys come up with a, a, a great suggestion or a new idea that then they engage in because they've come up with it but also they're getting a physical development um, masterclass from themselves right? so if we can engage the boys into what they're trying to do and frame it in that way then hopefully we can get even better outcomes from it Yeah I think that is great for engagement isn't it because they're essentially setting the rules and you see you see kids anyway, don't you? If you put them in a in a room or on a pitch and they'll come up with some sort of game and just start playing it straight away. So if you can tap into that the mind and, and get them being creative, I think that's that's really valuable for a session like that, isn't it? Definitely. And we, we found as well that if you just even if you have the sport set up beforehand and it's quite an obvious sport, let's say the basketball nets are up or so on, like 
arrival activity. The boys and men are coming and do arrival. Well, not meant to come in, but they do come in and do arrival activities if they get there early. And there's a good few boys that will then move over to the different sport that's been set up and start either doing something that's slightly twisted for football in terms of trying to like flick the ball into the basketball net or they just start playing basketball as such. So it's again, just creating the environment to allow them to, to experiment in different things rather than just telling them this is what you should be doing and do it because this will make you a better footballer. Like, can we engage them in the process and get them in, um, in the right environment to be able to learn and develop? Yeah. And you spoke about before about the, the fundamental movements and you mentioned a couple of them already, but what are some of the others that you, that you guys are working towards? Uh, so we, the fundamental movements that are related to the multi-sport factor is we take from a, um, a model called the athletic skills model, which we have used, spoke to the people there and, and uh, so on. And, they're really simple movement skills you're able to then integrate in. So like balancing and falling is one, um, grappling and fighting, it would be an example of another, um, and jumping and landing and so on. So they're, they're simple, they're simple fundamental skills that I would be pretty self-managing to anyone. But then it's just trying to transfer those into the sport that you're trying to do in a in a good way, you almost use those fundamental movements skills to then dictate which sport you're going to do for the next four weeks or five weeks, and then work around the different fundamental fundamental movement school skills each week. So try and change it up so it, it, then it doesn't become boring or monotonous for the the individuals or the players. And I suppose that gives you the option as well to use different sports if you've got that that fundamental movement as the focus rather than the actual sport as the focus, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. And I think it creates um, increased creativity as well because then it's not just, oh, let's put a game of handball on today. It's, right, we're trying to get this and this out of it. Um, we're going to use this sport. How can we then do it? So it's it creates you to think more about your session and how you're going to um, develop. And in terms of it, in terms of any sort of gym work, Sam, when are the, what age are they going into the gym? What age are they learning to go through movements in the gym as well as the multi-sport programme? So within the younger age groups, they're always going to have some fundamental movements, like gym fundamental movements, terms of like squat, lunge, hinge, uh, press, pull, and so on, like based within those multi-sport areas. Like we'll, we'll try, we, we get a, we're fortunate to have a decent amount of time with the players going through the um, system. So they'll be integrated within that. The time where it becomes a little more structured in terms of like strength development and so on, rather than like coordinationally based would be post peak high velocity factors. So 14s, 15s, 16s is when we would then be working on developing strength and power, which is a bit more like gym specific. Um, and that's down to, when we're in growth spurt areas and they're competent with the movements and so on, we don't necessarily want to see with that growth spurt, we may see changes in those movements that we have previously seen as being um, either exceptional or good or whatever. And we don't want to just start loading those just because they're in a certain age group. So let's say just because you're in the 14s doesn't necessarily mean that you need to then start loading that boy and try and increase strength because 
in the end, we may be loading a dysfunctional movement pattern because of that growth spurt that's occurring. Um, so we like to stick with when we feel comfortable for them to move into that strength development stage. Um, then we'll try and create a more individual program for them in terms of more like group individualization. So a group of them from 14s may go into the gym and start off their gym journey as such in terms of strength and the rest will still base on like coordinational factors, um, which isn't just multi-sport based. It will be more like m- more like movement challenge based and so on. Like, can you create a, a different movement outcome or more like results orientated um, movement rather than just, can we lift heavier and heavier load? Yeah, that's interesting. So I take it that comes as part of the, the teams come together and your, and your staff coming together to put that into place. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and again, we're fortunate to have Megan Hill, who's our PhD student, who um, allows us or gives us the the growth information. We talk around where they are in their growth spurt, what we think. And also, like, just from your eye, you can tend to see the boys that are these early maturers that have gone post-peak high velocity versus some of the pre-peak high velocity. And it's amazing then when you talk to the coaches how much of it integrates with we think they're going for a growth spurt and also they're having a different performance or what, what have you. And that's an extremely important conversation to have because it's very hard to look back five months previous and think of what a player was five months ago and then to not get caught in the moment of he's not playing very well at the moment. Like the, we even need to do something more to make him improve or he may not be good enough for the academy. And to understand that growth rate and have someone that can step back from the emotion of coaching someone and be like, no, these, this guy's going through growth. Be patient. Let's see what he's like in three or four months time is, is really valuable because like all the coaches, sports scientists and physios here, we get emotionally attached to coaching them and trying to make them better. And then that can obviously have its advantages but also disadvantages in terms of like your next move so it's really important to have people that are perceived from outside and and give them more information um around that regarding it um that just just comes back to that integration again doesn't it exactly yeah definitely um and then we try and within that growth spurt period of time do a lot more multi-stimulus variable movement factors to to try and increase coordination but at a lower load so it'll be more like game-based movement challenges and so on to hopefully affect their ability to coordinate their movement and hopefully that will have that effect on on the pitch we've um we've got some megan has done some phd work uh on her next study which will be um going to press soon regarding maturity within the academy and maturity so we know from a previous study we just released so we just released a paper i think it was like last week um on just the relative age and the maturity status within our academy so it was sort of just a descriptive study around what the last seven years has shown um and then we want to delve deeper into that in terms of not just how players come into the academy but also what happens when they're in here so we looked at match grades uh coaches give a match grade to players every Sunday. So every player gets a match grade depending on how they perform. It could be a four, which means um, exceeds expectations, a three, which means it meets expectations, a two, which is 
just below expectations and a one is below, uh, below oh, sorry two is approaching expectations and one is below expectations and then we worked on um over the last four years looking at players match grades compared to their maturity but also their age within the academy so the relative age effect and from there we saw that the early maturers will from 14s up under 14s 15s and under 16s the early maturers will get significantly higher match grade compared to the later maturers within their age group, um, which is really important to understand because that will then show us that we need to move players a little bit more in terms of what we spoke about, those dropping the later maturers down into the younger age group if need be to allow them to have more time and chance of getting those better performances as such to be perceived as better, that sort of talent retention factor. Um, but also then moving those early maturers up to the to the older age group to allow them to have a bit more of a challenge, like David spoke about previously. Um, but the interesting thing there was that at our under-12s, the reverse effect happened. So the late maturers had a higher match grade than the early maturers, and the 13s, there was no um, significant difference. And when we looked into the data more, we actually found that this peak high velocity time or area, which you'd expect around in the 12s and 13s, was having a detrimental effect on the match grade. Um, so showing that this peak high velocity, this growth spurt, is actually having an effect on footballing performance within the academy. And this is what really pushed us towards like growth spurts in terms of every two weeks we're going to measure them and really see how this is affecting them in terms of talking to the coaches and also um, looking at their match grades and a little bit closer in their performance data in terms of like sprint speeds and so on and so forth to, um, to understand what this growth is really doing to the boys and trying to just individualise their programme that a little bit more because it's highly important. Um, especially if they're now reduced in terms of match performance and they're not used to it, what psychological issues does that have and can we put a more individualised approach into them to to help them get out of that situation? Seems a really key area to focus on and it seems like the, the programme can be uh, progressed in a really good way from from the, I suppose, the research that you guys are doing as well. Yes, hopefully. Awesome. Well, Sam, I really appreciate your time coming on. I think there's been some quality inf information there. And I think backing up, obviously, the episode with David, the, the stuff that you guys have both covered has been absolutely quality. And I think we've, um, I tried not to go over too much of what he went over. And I don't think we have that. I think all we've done is added to it. So I really appreciate you giving up your time. Um, where's best if people have got any questions or they want to reach out to you? Um. My email is probably the thing I spend my most time on in terms of um, connection. So that'll be scott at saintsfc.co.uk. And then awesome. I'm on and off Twitter. So um, I'll probably stay away from that and, uh, and send me an email instead. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm sure there'll be some people out there that have got a few questions. So uh, you might get a few messages, but... Thanks again for your time, mate, and uh, all the best for the season. Brilliant. Cheers, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the episode with Sam Scott. It was great to have him on. You can go and follow Sam. He's on Twitter at samscott26. And he was also good enough to give his email out. If anyone reaches, wants to reach out to him on email, which is scott 
at saintsfc.co.uk. I've written down a load of notes um, and to be honest, it was hard to pick just a few takeaways because there was absolutely loads from this episode, but a few of the things that stuck out for me were the, where we talked about the care for players. So one of the reasons why you think Southampton has been so successful is the care they give to the players. Um, the staff integration, which has been mentioned a number of times by top practitioners, um, it's staff integrating and working together to achieve similar things, but also being open enough to to challenge uh, different coaches in different roles and, and be open enough to amend the practice if needed. And then the matching the fundamental movements to the, the multi-sport programme, that was really good to hear and it was great to get his insight into how Southampton actually run the multi-sport programme and, and the reasons why they use certain sports and how they match it to a fundamental movement. So that was great to hear and it was great for Sam to give up his time. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I did mention at the start of the episode, if you've got time, please head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Um, if this has been one of your favourite favorite episodes, mention it. Mention Sam's name in the podcast, your biggest takeaways. Um, likewise, with all the other episodes we've got out there so far, it'd be great to get a few more reviews on there. Um, and also, we will be bringing out those network meeting dates and venues very soon, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you again for listening, and we'll speak to you again next week. <laughs>